Welcome to Inflection Points, where in each episode we talk about the pivotal moments in the careers of tech leaders to help them navigate a new path to growth. My name is Joe Hyde, and this week we speak with Ewan Jarvie. Ewan has held multiple C-suite roles at Dentsu, Mediacom, and IRI Worldwide. In this episode, we discuss delivering radical transformation in an organization of 8,000 people, the most important question you should ask yourself if you are acquiring a business, and the power of reverse mentoring. From SI Partners, this is Inflection Points. My guest today is Ewan Jarvie. Ewan has led organizations, both public and private equity backed on both sides of the Atlantic. Most recently, he was European president of IRI Worldwide, a leading technology analytics and data provider. Prior to that, Ewan was UK and Ireland CEO for Dentsu and COO for Mediacom in New York and in London. Ewan, welcome to Inflection Points. Nice to see you, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So we'll jump straight in. Um, You started your career at Media with uh, Zenith and then Rap before you joined Mediacom in 1997. What led you to get into Media? Uh, it's it's a fairly well-worn path, actually, Joe. Like almost everybody in media, I, I didn't mean to go into media. Uh, I was one of those people who wanted to work in advertising. I was desperate to do so. And uh, and I wasn't really getting very far. Uh, when I when I graduated in, in 1990, it was, there was a little bit of a recession. Um, and, and I answered an ad in The Guardian, like many people, got, a, got an interview at Zenith and then found out on the way out, it was talking to a media company, not an advertising agency. So I literally <laughs> ended up as a TV buyer. Um, I think most of my friends thought I bought sort of portable Panasonic, you know, 20-inch TVs <laughs> for a living. But um, uh, I, I loved it. I absolutely fell into it. It was a great place to work. It was amazing people and atmosphere in Zenith in those days. It was the early start of media independence. Uh, so, yeah, that's how I got into it. And um, very thankful for it, too. And and it was at Mediacom where you really uh, defined your career. And you uh, you offered quite an intriguing role, um, your, your role there. And it was sort of a startup within a corporation. Um, your mandate was to build an office in, in Edinburgh. Yeah. What made you take that role? Probably um, a, a lack of knowledge and experience and too much ambition is the short answer. <laughs> um, look, I was, a, I was a, a young Scottish person in London. Uh, the opportunity came along to be part of a startup. Uh, to really get into it, um, and and the advantage was it was back in Scotland, so it was too enticing for me. Um, the other story really was my daughter was born in London and she was learning to speak and she was starting to count to four, and and the number four sounded awfully like a, a Cockney accent. So my wife said to me, "We got to get back over the border quickly." Um, <laughs> but no, it was really the fact that I wanted to have a go at could I do this? Yeah, you know, I I, I didn't know enough really, if an honest truth, but. The people at Mediacom or uh, the media business, as it was, and Stephen Allen and Alan Rich particularly, were uh, were, were kind enough to take a take a punt on me, and uh, I think it worked out pretty well for everybody. Yeah. Oh, what were your sort of key learnings from that time? Um, it's a it's a great question. I mean, as you get older, the the lessons become more visible. Uh, we're looking back. I mean, I learned I learned that you know it takes a lot of hard work to do. And build any company. Um, mm. Secondly, I learned you can't do anything on your own in business. You need to have the support of people around you in and outside the company. Um, and thirdly, there's no shortcut to servicing clients. You know, you got to you got to hear them. You really got to listen to what they say. You got to work really hard for them. And you got to go further. If people are paying you to do a job for them, 
you, you've got to go really far and beyond their expectations to, to stand a good chance of retaining and growing your business. So I learned a lot by being pretty self, um, I guess, self-driven, but quite quickly into it, I learned that lesson. You need to have other people around you. So when I started to build out the company and we were growing a bit faster, I was I, I hired some really strategic people around me who were just different sorts of animals and different experiences, uh, and that really accelerated us on. And um, you know the learnings there are, are are pretty clear. You know, it's uh, sometimes it's sometimes you don't know what you don't know, and that can be a good thing. Yeah, uh, it doesn't. It should never hamper your ambition. But uh, yeah, I learned some pretty salient lessons there. Tenacity and and hard work is something that you you kind of learn the hard way sometimes. Um, and that, that, that always stood me in really good stead going forward. Very much, um, entrepreneurial skills, these sort of self-motivation, that tenacity and not getting knocked back by, you know, adversity. Yeah. And I don't underestimate the fear of failure. I mean, it's, uh, as a young guy, um, going out on a, on, on your own and setting something up is it can be seen as foolish or, or brave or both, mm. but, but a lot of it is getting up earlier just to make sure that you don't trip up. And mm. there's a little bit of that is quite important. I think particularly looking back on it, I was, I was desperate to be successful, but mm. same breath. You could say I was desperate not to be unsuccessful. I didn't want to fail. Yeah. Well, I don't think you did. This leads us to our first inflection point you. And so it was about 2010, I believe you were offered a role in New York yeah. Can you sort of set the scene and, and, and how that came about and, and what it was like when you when you landed there? Yeah, sure. Um, so we were running a business in Edinburgh and actually in Dublin. We'd, we'd done a, a startup and a turnaround for, for the Mediacom brand in Dublin as well. And the business was growing really nicely. And uh, the, the then global CEO of the business asked me if I would consider going to America to help uh, try and reset the American business. And again, it was one of those opportunities where I never thought in my wildest imagination I would go and work in America, far less in Manhattan. So it was a good time for me and my family. Um, the kids were of an age where they were more transportable. They hadn't quite hit into the into mm. the teenage angst and exams. So the decision was was good. I mean, I'd, I thought I'd taken the Scottish and Irish businesses to a, a really good place. Um and they were growing at a, at a rate that was comfortable, but I wasn't learning a great deal. And I wanted to push myself again. I was just sort of just turned over the other side of 40. So it was quite a quick decision to go and do it. The business in America was a good sized business, but it, it wasn't necessarily running at the best level. Um, and it wasn't in the top five of media agencies in North America. So, I mean, I, I was sent over there as a chief client officer. And I guess, you know, looking back on it, there's a number of things I probably could have done differently, you know, going into that job, but but also, you know, going into a new country, into a new business, not from that market. Um, I was probably, again, a little naive in terms of how quickly the impact would would happen and also what the cultural differences were. I, did, I underestimated that quite significantly. And that's just down to a lack of experience. What was it you were trying to achieve whilst you were out there? So what we were trying to get to is Mediacom was a hugely successful business in the UK and in Europe. Uh, I mean, it was the biggest in the dominant European markets of Germany and the UK, but it was it never quite got to the levels, the same levels in North America. And it was really just trying to build a, an excitement and, and I guess a momentum in the US business. But also there was a sort of philosophy, a strategy around the Mediacom product and the way of working, and it probably didn't quite translate across the Atlantic. So part of my role was to to sort of upskill the the organization, put in the client service, and, and be a 
be a bit more strategic, I think, about the product and, and pushing it forward, make it a, a market leader, which is easy said and difficult to do, particularly if you are one person and a headcount of probably well over a thousand people. Wow. And so how did you go about trying to make change in that organization? It was difficult. I've got to be honest with you. I mean, it's probably this most salient time of my career. I mean, it wasn't a great success for me uh, personally. Um, most of that was down to me. I mean, I was probably a little bit of a bull in a china shop. I underestimated moving from a business that was probably 150 people to well in excess of a thousand people in four different locations. The cultural divide was was much greater than I anticipated. America in corporate business was much more conservative than I thought. The this the discipline and structure in the agency was much, much more rigid. Um, and there was a lot of people just doing a particular type of job. They were working for the clients that weren't really vested into the agency. So, I mean, what I was trying to do really was to build and rebuild a, a leadership team around the CEO who was there and the CFO who was there. There was a lot of politics and, and strange structures to the way things were working. And um, I guess I probably wasn't as patient as I should have been or could have been. Um, I probably needed to you know, listen a lot more going into it. But uh, it was a difficult time. I think the first phone call I ever got from any client when I landed in America was after about three days, and they were basically you know, terming the terming the contract. So it was a little bit like that. It was all hands to the pumps. So it wasn't a pleasant ride, but it was pretty much a learning experience, as my dad would have told me. And what were the big takeaways for you? Uh, oh, it's good that. I mean, look, I think we're divided by a common language between here and America, and it lulls you sometimes into a false sense of security. <laughs> I think scale of businesses sometimes misdirects you or misleads you into how to do things. You know, the, the simple thing about great businesses around behaviors of the leadership and doing as you say and saying as you do. So walk in the talk, if you will. And I think there was an awful lot of poor behaviors in the business um, that were probably not addressed and were allowed to continue. And that percolates through the organization. So you weren't dealing with a couple of things that weren't quite right. It was a fairly systemic problem all the way through the organization. There was sort of people you know, hiding in plain sight, which is a terrible expression, but th that, that was quite prevalent. And, and I guess what I learned was that at the core of it, if you're going to instinctively drive change and, and reset things, you've got to set a really clear vision. You've got to set out exactly how and what everybody is going to do. And then you've got to keep people honest about how you're doing it. Um, and to do that, you need a quorum of people who, who are true believers in, in the process. And I was standing on my own. And it was, it was you know, probably the naivety of my own position that shouldn't have, don't go to a place like that on your own. It, it, you're sort of asking for trouble, really. You know, you need trusted people beside you. Uh, and you know, although it's the same language, you're still sort of six hours off the clock back to the UK I'd worked with a really close bunch of people for nearly 10 years, and we had been tremendously successful. I don't think we'd lost a pitch in about four years uh, back in Scotland. So I didn't understand why things weren't working, and I probably didn't pay enough attention to the root causes early. So, yeah, you know, it was an interesting time. You know, as I said, it was a lumpy ride, but it, uh, it's probably the most formative thing in my career. I learned a lot about myself and things that I shouldn't do when things aren't necessarily running the right way. And sometimes that's that's more beneficial in the long term. Yeah, 
and what what shouldn't be done in uh, when you're you know when things aren't going quite the right way. So look, you gotta. Everyone has a gut a gut instinct into what things are how things are going, and and sometimes in very large organisations, you've got to go through the proof process very meticulously, and particularly in North America, it's quite an analytical styled culture. Mm. Um, and it's very hierarchical. So you've got to bring the proof to people and sequentially bring them on the journey. It's not enough just to leap to, look, this is what's happening. This I can see it. Believe me, trust me, let's get on with it. I think I probably leapt too far too fast and didn't bring enough people on the journey. And that's probably a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of inexperience and, and a mixture of a fish out of water. So what I learned was, you know, that, that great expression of you have two ears and one mouth, use them in the proportionate reality uh and i think it's the right thing to do and and and, you know when you're desperately keen to make an impact sometimes you can be a little bit too rash and a little bit too um presumptuous and and i think i that was a failing on my side the guys in the business were great they they were working the best way they could i don't think the business was working well for them and uh in the short term i probably didn't really help it hugely i was just too keen to get on and and make a difference i think there's a lot of learnings there for all of us i think many of us have been in that situation um, so kind of rolling forward to uh, 2017, I think it was, and a new opportunity presented itself to you, um, the position at, uh, at Dentsu as a CEO, UK and Ireland. Um, you joined a business that had made multiple acquisitions, I think had, what, 27 brands at that point in time. Was that right? Yeah, there was, uh, Dentsu had been very acquisitive in the UK. And uh, and there was an awful lot of businesses which were in the umbrella company, but were just mm. not well integrated. So yeah, it was it was a long tail of lots of different types of companies. Yes. And, and what was the business like when you joined? How did it feel? It, it felt a little out of control, if I'm honest with you. I mean, Dentsu as a brand was still not particularly well understood outside of Japan. Yeah. Uh, I think the UK business was still more of a media company as it, as it was or had been as Aegis Media. So it was the Caras, the Visiums. It's a great business, creatively not particularly strong um, and had lots of other bits and pieces, bits of technology, bits of social. Um, it just felt like it was a sort of cooperative or, or, or collection of different capabilities, none of which were firing in all cylinders. But the sort of internal culture of the business had become a little altruistic. It was much more about the impact it wanted to make in society. Mm. And then it was what it was doing for its clients. And I think in a service business, clients have got to be your first focus. You've got to be able to deliver an exceptional product because there's always somebody else out there who will deliver as good, if not a better product, if you're not on your game. Mm. And I felt the business wasn't focusing on how to be its very best. So we had some work to do, but it was, again... It was an opportunity driven by there was an entrepreneurship that I, that I was really much uh, associated to. And, and, and it's very attractive, that sort of spirit. Uh, and I kept coming back to it in my career. But it's the challenge I love. I mean, I love that. I love I seem to end up in places where there's a quite a thorny challenge to do something. Um, I didn't do any of that by design at all. I was looking for a nice, easy ride. But um, <laughs> this wasn't it. And, and And so what was your mandate? What were you trying to achieve in your time there what did you set yourself to achieve so we 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 set ourselves a very very strict and and very clear objective of of what we called radical transformation of the whole group so rationalize the business create real houses of capability and expertise the dentsu brand didn't mean anything specifically in the uk but we had great media products we had emerging 
creative products and businesses. And we had, just as I was coming into it, the more established Merkel or CXM business, which was a consumer experience business. And yep. the the integration, not of those businesses, but of those capabilities was absolutely critical. So we set ourselves a North Star of turning this into a much more profitable growing business because it hadn't really been growing for five years. Sorting out the structure of what the business needed to be in the future, not just trying to massage it as it had integrated in its growth. So it wasn't a small task. And there'd been a couple of false starts in this in Dentsu previously. So they had tried to do some work in this space, but it just wasn't successful. It's it's something you've got to do wholesale. And it's not easy work. So mm. we we set ourselves a very clear objective. We talked about the language of radical transformation in the company to our customers, to the marketplace. And then we started to coin the phrases of things like the house of Dentsu. So you mm. would walk into a building that would have all of the capabilities you would need as a client and a customer for the future as well as for today. And and, and just winding back to the beginning of that journey. So you, you've just stepped inside the organization. And, um, you know, as you said before, when you were in Edinburgh, you had your trusted lieutenants around you. You know, what, what was what was the first port of call for you in, in, in stepping off and, and, and sort of de- developing and then executing the strategy? So there, there was two probably very critical things. First one was to pull my CFO and my my head of HR really close as a working partnership around me. So the triumvirate I had, we became incredibly important. And that was ensuring that everybody knew what everyone else was doing. Interesting. My view is you always need a finance person who understands the physicality of the business, the, the bodies and the brains. Mm. And you desperately need an HR person who understands the financing and understands how you grow a business. So you can make reasons, collective decisions with different expertise, of course. Yeah. So the first point was to to make sure that the people I had beside me, we understood each other better. You know, and it yeah. was a, it's a really important relationship. And the second point, it goes back to my American experience. I, I, I wanted to pull someone into the organization who I'd worked with in the past, who I knew could do exceptional things with clients. Yeah. So, that's what I did. I pulled somebody into the organization I knew very well, trusted him Im- impeccably. We'd worked very well together in the past, and he came in and took over the client leadership role for the for the group. So it gave me those lieutenants or or peers, if you will, actually, who I knew I could trust. And then you can share the the more immediate problems. Nothing's ever a disaster when you've got great people around you. You just deal with it as a daily matter. And that was the bit. Then what we were able to do is you have at least three other voices who are speaking with the same tonality and expression. And the thing for me that's critical is they all had the same set of behaviors that I had. We knew what we wanted to do, but we yeah. also knew instinctively how we were going to get it done. So you got you got the, the, the top team aligned around you and, and the right bodies in the room in the May I say sort of war room, if you like, of yeah. of yeah, to take this sort of radical change into into the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember you mentioning that there's a uh, you know there's a moment where you were standing on a street corner and and, and looking at three different offices. <laughs> yeah. talk, talk us through that and 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 kind of the realization. Yeah, sure. I mean, so I, I got this great big job and this you know I'm looking after this fabulous business and um, it's got all these amazing people. There's like well over four thousand of them around the UK in in something like nineteen locations. Um, and I suddenly was thinking, well, that's quite a lot of places. And uh, as you know, I live just outside of Edinburgh in, in Scotland, but we had a number of businesses in Edinburgh. So I went up to, to see them one particular day and I'm standing 
outside the Usher Hall in Edinburgh, which is you know Scotland's equivalent of the Royal Albert Hall. It's a concert venue right in the middle of of, of Edinburgh. And I'm looking directly at the Cara building. And to the right of it is the building that Merkel were in. And behind me was the building that White Space, which became Density Creative, was in. And they were literally inside of 100 yards of each other. Um, and as I went into each of the offices, they, they all had great room to grow. And I just thought, this is nonsense. This is crazy. We're, you know, it's better if we put them all in one place. Um, and this was pre-COVID. And that was just Edinburgh. And Edinburgh was, the, was probably the smaller part of our business. In Manchester, we had a similar situation. We had a creative agency across the street from our media properties. Our B2B research business was out of town in Manchester. We had a technology center in different places. So it was all scattered around the place. And London was just a network of, of, of very, very expensive offices all over the place. So <laughs> it didn't seem... And I'm not an accountant. It didn't seem a particularly structured way of looking at saving money or making the best use of the resources. Because I wanted people to be proud of coming to work, but I also wanted them to meet lots of other talent, not just in their space. And it just rubs off. And you were never going to get that in those places. So we took a decision pre-COVID to to really rationalise our our premises and uh, and location strategy, and that involved actually reshaping where some of our services were, were coming from and having centers of excellence in different places, not all in the South. You know, we, we yeah. moved a lot of roles outside of London uh, into the North. Yeah. And, and look, a very forward thinking um, strategy of what, what I think has happened in part because of COVID, but in part um, just, just anyway, is reflecting where, you know, taking roles to where the talent is and talent wants to be. I, I just want to dwell a little bit on, on that, on that change that you went through, because this is a, you know, a conundrum for many businesses, particularly those that have gone through M&A. You're bringing in lots of separate brands um, that they've got their identity. Yeah. People have association and loyalty to to that brand and, and sometimes to the office. One of the biggest considerations for people is where, where do I sit? Yes. You know, uh, how do you start trying to kind of change the the physical infrastructure without destroying those separate cultures and trying to th- get everyone to think about um you know one one i guess more of one business one pnl yeah it's a great expression one pnl um and it's something we had at Dentsu for a lot of time when you buy a business or when you're bought and i've been fortunate to buy businesses i've also been in organizations that have been bought so i've been on both sides of this particular question irrespective of which side you sit on there's a belief that you're more important than the other side, <laughs> which is actually not entirely true. Um, and and you, you mentioned it, Joe, you're absolutely right. What you've got to look at is the cultural understanding of where you're going and why one plus one equals three, not one plus one equals two. Everyone has to give something to the party. So you don't get a single dominant culture in acquisition. You've got to allow the integration and then you've got to allow it to form. But for me, Leadership's role is to set where the business wants to get to. The management and the and the culture of the organization and the people in the business will dictate what form that takes. You're, you're telling them where we're going to go. You're giving them the ammunition. But they have to create a culture that belongs to them. You can't enforce it. Interesting. What you sometimes find in in poorly integrated businesses is they're hanging on to what they were in the past yeah. or they've made it into their own minds that they're the most important part of the new company. And by dint of that, they don't integrate. What they become is silos under a shell. And that is exactly the wrong way to buy and integrate and acquire companies. So 
I think it's it, it's quite clear if you've done it, and you, it's even clearer if you've ever done it badly and seen it done badly. But <laughs> there's some big watchouts, and it's the thing for me. The most critical thing is when you buy a business from from a, a set of people who've built it themselves. Yes. You've really got to gauge not do they want to come on the journey into the new organization, but are they capable of evolving into the new organization? It's a really important question because if they don't, they hang on to the past and that becomes a massive millstone for the whole integration and the speed of the business. So leadership gets tested mostly, I think, in situations like that when you're acquiring businesses and integrating managements and leadership teams. It's a very, very critical part of a uh, a growth strategy. And so, just to play back what I think I heard, you, you were saying that you kind of set the mandate about this is the direction, this is where we want to go. But actually, I'm going to empower the teams for you guys to actually work out how best to execute on this. Yeah. So, so what you're trying to do is this: you can't you can't tell four and a half thousand people what to do. It's just you can set them a direction. <laughs> it'd be nice wanna, if you could. That'd be lovely. Yes, but I tell you what, you'd be knackered by the end of it because it's a lot of talking. <laughs> Um, but you employ people to be smart. So give them a direction, give them the tools to be successful, set them an ambition, which is we want to be this size or we want to have this capability or we want to have this volume of business that's integrated across the piece. And then what you naturally will see, if you force things, people are smart, they're educated and they've got strong opinions. They've got great instincts. If they feel it's being enforced upon them. Mm. They generally regale against it. Don't force it. Allow it to be organic. But do give them shutters you know and guardrails but stay close to them listen to what they say you know engage in in in, in proper mm. 360s with the whole company you know it's not easy you've got to tell them it's going to yeah. be difficult you're going to find things are going to yep. change the fact that you you do like the office you're in and you like sitting in that particular corner that's not always going to be the case but that doesn't mean to say it won't be better it could be a lot better but you need everyone to to, to accept the fact or be willing to go on the journey with you. Yeah. Um, if you get that, you'll get decent feedback and you can have a, you can have a reasoned conversation. You don't expect everybody to agree with you, but I think what, what you try to do and what we try to do at Dentsu and at IRI was to ensure that people felt they had a voice and that they were heard. My, my guarantee, my, my pledge to all the people I've worked with when I've been leading companies is you will be heard. Your voice will be heard. But we'll also make sure that, you know, if you ask a question, you'll get an answer. You might not like it, but you'll definitely get an answer. But uh, And that's what I think the, the, the integrity bond should be, the, the sort of gift of leadership to the business is, I will hear you, I will listen to you, I'll reason with you, and I'll explain if we're doing something you don't like, I'll tell you why I'm doing it. You can choose to accept it or not, but I'll, at least you'll have the benefit of being given the explanation. I think that's a fascinating idea that, that that someone will always be heard, and and I can see the absolute attraction in you know in, in particularly in people businesses. How do you execute on that? How do you provide that opportunity for people? Just make sure you do as you say you're going to do. Uh, so I made a pledge in in my businesses that if I was asked a question, if I was asked for an internal meeting, I would never not respond or not or, or not engage in it, and and I was true to my word. So I asked people to hold me to account. Uh, sim- simple as that. Um, but the, the contract is, I will hear you, but I ask that you, you know, respectfully hear me in return. Um, so, no, it's, it, it's, it's part of the philosophy of the behaviors that, that we instilled, which is we wanted to engage with a, a very diverse workforce in a very significant fashion. But also in Tedensu, the size of the company, 
we we also put in a reverse mentoring program for the very senior people. I was one of them as well. I was mentored by a 29-year-old wow. single black mother in London. She was fantastic. It was probably the most groundbreaking thing I've done in 10 years in business. Wow. And she helped coach me in in some of the softer things of language that you sometimes clumsily as a 50-plus old bloke trip over. Um, and I got more confident about having those conversations, and I felt better engaging in very difficult conversations around DE&I and diversity and equality uh, and equity. So they're sensitive topics, but as a leader, you've got to lean right in. So we tried to ensure that all of our leaders at Dentsu had the ability and the opportunity to be coached by someone who's much younger, who's facing different challenges so we could hear them properly, but also try and learn um, because you shouldn't have to stop learning just because you're the boss. I think that's absolutely fascinating. I've I've never actually heard that before. Um, I I think it's intriguing and it's actually really logical. I mean, mm. so many businesses when they're trying to make a change or or uh, improve or grow, the thing they don't do is ask their customers. Yeah. Uh, you know, and this is just the, the in a people business, this is just the equivalent. Of, oh, let's go and ask our let's get our people to tell us how we do this better. You know, because we can learn both ways. Um, yeah, it's a brilliant piece of insight. It was. It was. I mean, look, I was having to deal in COVID, particularly with a remote working community of, you know, four thousand odd people. I would talk to the the two ladies who reverse mentored me before I did town halls. Just it, it was. It was just really helpful. I mean, yeah. Um, and it made a big impact on me as a as a as a person, not just as a boss, but as a, a human being. I'm much more aware. And sometimes they, in, in situations like that, you can't necessarily help. What you've got to do is you've got to be able to try and understand, um, but try and be helpful. You can't fix some stuff, but try and be helpful. And you start by just listening. You know, yeah, it, it's a huge, it's a huge advantage in, in pretty much any walk of life, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, you touched on IRI there. Um, you know, so you took the role in ROI worldwide in the last, was it a couple of years that you took that year? Yeah, it was about, uh, where are we now? So it's probably, yeah, about 18 months ago. And, and for those of us who don't know, can you tell us a bit about ROI worldwide? Yeah, it, it, look, it's a tremendous business. It's a, uh, in short, it's what you would call a predictive analytics business. It's in big data. Um, IRI is, is a buyer and supplier of uh, EPOS and POS data systems um, and information from supermarkets around the world and chunks that back into manufacturers of packaged goods, et cetera. So th- it's a huge business and they have some exceptional proprietary technology that underpins their their business. You know, they go head to head with Nielsen, Kantar, GFK every day of the week. So it's a, it's a huge business, very much US-based, um, a very sort of disparate footprint in Europe. So I was brought in to pull that together uh, as, as the ambition of the business was to grow quickly, uh, potentially IPO. Uh, it was private equity backed. Uh, but very quickly, we got into uh, conversations about a, a private equity sale into um, ultimately Hellman and Friedman bought the business in June of last year. Um, and it was, a, it was a fascinating business. I mean, I, when you work in advertising, as I did, sometimes you feel it's the only industry and you're the heart of every decision-making process in all the corporates. But as soon as I moved into this data and technology space, I realized that we were dealing with management information that was business critical to these public companies and they needed it every day because they reported to Wall Street and the city based upon empirical information that we managed for them. So you suddenly became relevant and important 
not because you wanted to be, but because it was what you actually did. So I found it a fascinating business. And I found the the access into major corporates really eye-opening and how the dynamic of POS data can actually inform not just what you're doing with your customers, but your consumers. And I think there's a migration there, uh, as I've always spoken about in my ad world, of bringing that two conundrums of the customer and the consumer together. And you've got that information set in almost every major um, FMCG company, for sure, that you know your customer way better than you than you recognize in your marketing sometimes. So yeah, it was a, it was a fascinating experience. Um, it was relatively short-lived because we, we sold to Hellman and Friedman. Um, there was a merger then of IRI and NPD, which is, you know, I, I, I sat across that whilst that was uh, being initiated in EMEA. And then I took the opportunity to step out um, to look at, you know, what I could do differently and use my experience in a different way. So look, you know, taking on a non-exec chair role now with an internal uh, comms and employee engagement business and looking at different things for there. Yeah. And how, you know, you, you said that, it, you know, when they first approached you at IRI, it wasn't, you know, instantly what you were something you were looking for. How did they uh, convince you uh, to, to take the role? It, it, this is great. I've asked myself that a number of times. So, yeah, the first, <laughs> time, the first time they, they spoke to me about it, I actually thought, well, this is just so boring. I'm not going to go anywhere near it. It's basically data. It's POS stuff. It gets chunked into management. It's in a piece of technology and fine. Uh, see if I can help them find somebody for Europe. But the more I got into it, the more I understood actually just how far up the food chain that information was used and how how much more you could tell from it. So the actual technology side of it, I'm not a techni- technology expert by any means, but the technology that IRI have proprietary is fantastic and it's it's hugely powerful and it's a game changer. Mm. It has a, you know, like every piece of technology, it has a shelf life to it whilst you have a market advantage. But it wasn't well socialized into Europe at that point. Um, and that was a massive opportunity because you could see what it had done in America. Yeah. So that sort of pricked my imagination. But also, and candidly, the organization private equity backed was talking about growth. They were talking about growth, expansion, events. It was exciting. And I'd come through um, quite a, a challenging time with Dentsu, which was with COVID, with the transformation work that we had done, the rationalization of the businesses and the premises. And also Dentsu as a public company globally had, you know, had some challenges over those times as well. So we had to do some things which ordinarily weren't always just about growth. They were more about management of cost and structures. So this was liberating. And they got me excited in the potential of growth, the potential of opening new countries, of doing new things. Yeah. And what I loved was the speed of decision making. Um, wow. which was so fast, so fast versus public companies. And that was, you know, you could see it in the conversations you were having and it, 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 it was borne out to be much, much more true in reality. And that is a hugely fascinating thing um, in my world, you know, to have such fast, uh, expedient conversations and, and decisiveness. Um, it makes, makes the job a lot easier, quite frankly. So you had a mandate for growth, and yeah. to, and to uh, it, pull together the markets and, and, and bolster Europe. How do you start? I mean, growth is the mecca. This is everyone is, yeah. is off on that journey and wants to achieve. How do, you, how do you go about doing that? So I don't know if there's a playbook for it. I mean, the way I look at it is particularly if you're in a regional job versus a local job, the local job is slightly different. A regional job or an international job, you've got to pull the leaders together 
Uh, and you've got to figure out if it's growing, why is it growing? And if it's not growing, why is it not growing? Mm. And then you've got to look at the product. So one of the things that was very interesting in, in IRI was they had a fantastic product. They didn't sell it particularly well. And technology people, by their, by their main, sometimes don't sell things quite so well because the technology sells itself. I knew from my 30 years of advertising that I was really good at selling something that perhaps wasn't quite so good. So I knew there was somewhere I could help. And I remember having that conversation with the the new global CEO at IRI because he'd come from an advertising uh, and packaged goods and, and digital background. And we had the same thought, which is this is an amazing company. It's an amazing product. But God, if we sold it, we could sell it so much better. Mm. So we started to really invest into that and show and train and coach people at the very senior level how to approach a different pitch. Interesting. How to put a different level of not theatricals into it, but you know, product management, and then actually lift the game in terms of be a service business. Yeah. If you're a technology company, sometimes you're not a service business, you're a product business. We needed to turn ourselves into more of a service business. Um, and that in some places was really great, in other places was very difficult. The UK business in IRI was a spectacularly good business, and they really knew how to look after their customers in more challenging European markets or it was a different kettle of fish altogether. And that's sometimes how you have to figure it out. You've got different legislation, different employment laws. You've got works councils in certain parts of Europe. You've got to work through them if you want to do anything different. And then you've got the culture of different businesses. We were dealing with the world's largest food manufacturers. Mm. And we were dealing with the world's largest supermarkets. But we were also dealing with the association of foie gras owners in France. We were dealing with some of the largest cheese manufacturers in Italy. You know, these are mm. very distinct businesses and cultures and you've got to learn how to how to talk to them. So yeah, there's no there's no panacea. Uh, I think attention, my job really there was to coach and be highly supportive of the CEOs and the MDs of the countries and really get them to focus on increasing their capabilities. So it was sort of leading from behind, if you will. It was coaching and supporting and I, I, it's something I love doing. And and spending a lot of time with the people and being on the ground was was really important. So yeah, that's how we did it. Fantastic. I mean, I, I think there's a recurring theme that we're seeing more and more with technology businesses, understanding that where they want to work with some of the world's biggest organizations, there's an element of service that needs to go alongside that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're seeing SaaS businesses now looking at tech-enabled service businesses and bringing them into, bringing them alongside their organization. And I think it's, a, uh, yeah, it's a really, uh, it's a really intriguing sort of step as a, a maturing of the technology world. I think that's right. I think, I think one of the things is, you know, tech businesses sometimes try and sell themselves through the technology. I think you have to do way more than that, but yeah, nobody just sells something. There's, there's all of that pastoral care afterwards. And where media advertising marketing is very good is the understanding of, of relationships. It's not one and done. Yeah. And I think that is more true today in every aspect of business, whether you're buying or selling or running, it doesn't matter. You've got to keep close to the customers today because they'll most likely be your customers tomorrow too. Fantastic. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I've got one final question for you, Ewan. Sure. Um, after looking back, I want to look forward. And what is exciting you about the next 12 months? So what excites me actually is the fact that I think whilst we've, we're in this terribly darkened economic and political landscape, and we, we've seen this before, what, mm. what excites me is there's always, a, there's always a dawn. There's always a bit of shoots of recovery. 
And they're the most exciting times. You know, it's the sunlight in the morning directly after the darkness is much brighter. It's more acute. And I get excited by the opportunities where things will start to grow again and people will get more confident. And from a personal perspective, it's, you know, I've learned a lot in my career by, I think, being quite good at some things. But I've also learned a lot about being really bad at other things. And I know what they are. Um, and I've learned hugely around my capabilities and what I need to and where I can bring. And I, I'm just keen to make sure that I can get involved with really great, ambitious people because the opportunity in the next 12 months, I think it's going to be better and stronger than it has been in the last five years for corporates and business in general, particularly in the United Kingdom, but also across Europe. I think we are in a difficult time, but that means there will be better days coming. So yeah. I think a lot to be optimistic about. Oh, I'm all up for being optimistic. And I think any you'd be an asset in any business, you. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Ewan, thank you ever so much for being with us today and thank you for sharing your stories. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Inflection Points is a production of SI Partners. SI Partners is a leading corporate finance boutique for agencies, consultancies and technology providers at the forefront of the digital economy. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Joe Hine and you've been listening to Inflection Points.